Thanks, Mike, for that ministry of music. Tonight, as we continue in our study of the life of Moses, we look at that section in which he is on the mount and he beseeches God to show him God's glory. As I I thought about this uh, tonight, uh, I realized that we would probably have a a, a few uh, less people than what we normally have. And the people that we would have would be probably pretty acquainted with the scripture. So, uh, I, I wanted to, to approach this in such a way that, that it's a little more reflective. Uh, the outline is less, less clear. I'm going for a bigger picture idea that I hope uh, it will be, be meaningful to you. But Moses wants to know how he can be assured of the love of God in Exodus 33, verse 16. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight? Uh, how can Moses be assured that he has found favor in God's sight. Now, that's an interesting question in light of when it comes. Uh, He has already led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. One might ask, what more does it take? Uh, What what else does God have to do? I mean, he he poured out the plagues upon Egypt. Certainly, uh, Moses could see that, that God was with him, and yet... He asks the question, how can I know that I have found favor in thy sight? Which I think teaches us an important lesson. And that is that we can be saved for a long time and still have moments when we are questioning our relationship to God. And in particular, God's love and care for us. Especially when things don't go the way that we would like them to go. And we may ask the same question of God. How do we know that we have really found favor in your sight? That we are pleasing to you? That we are acceptable? God's reply is that God has a personal, intimate love for for Moses. Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing also which you have spoken. That is, uh, go with him. For you have found favor in my, my, my sight, and I have known you by name. Now, that is the greatest manifestation of finding favor in God's sight. He equates that with, I have known you by name. So, I have an intimate, personal relationship to you. Characterized as knowing you by name. This intimate, personal love of God is experienced 
by all of God's people. John 10, verse 3. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Uh, When we talk about the love of God, I think that many times we talk about God's love in a generic sense. For example, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And we lose sight of a personal, intimate love of God, in which he calls us unto himself. And in that calling us unto himself, it is a direct, personal call. So that, so that he is actually calling us by name. And the illustration that the scripture gives us concerning that great truth is in the burial of Lazarus. And if you remember, Lazarus has died. He's been buried for three days. And Mary and and Martha are weeping because Lazarus is dead and he's placed in a tomb along with some others. And then the great moment comes in which Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And only Lazarus comes out of that tomb, although there's other dead people there. And Lazarus comes out of that tomb. He is raised from the dead. Because God calls him by name. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight, God has called you by name. A direct, personal, intimate relationship with you as an individual. He brought you to himself. In Isaiah 43, verse 1, it says, But now, thus says Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, And he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. God has our names tattooed on his hands. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Well, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So here's a picture. You know, we know people that have tattooed names of individuals on their, on their body. Maybe they had a girlfriend or uh, a, uh, a wife. And, you know, Mary is tattooed on their, their forearm. Uh, and uh, they carry it where, wherever they go because of this intimate, personal relationship. Well, the, the, the scripture pictures it as though God, who, of course... Uh, is a spirit, but it pictures this metaphorically for us uh, as him having our names tattooed on his hands. He's not afraid to to show them. He's not afraid to identify with us. And there's that sense of permanence that uh, we are tattooed on his hands. What Moses now wants is a more intimate knowledge of God. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. A longing for a more intimate knowledge of God is the heart cry of all God's people. And again, this is kind of remarkable. But we see the Apostle Paul 
saying in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him. I may know him. Now here is Paul, who certainly has an intimate knowledge of Christ, who has seen the risen Christ, who has been caught up to heaven, it tells us in 1 Corinthians, that uh, here is the one who heard Christ speak on the road to Damascus. If anybody knew Christ, it was Paul. And Paul said, I forsake all these things in order that I may know him. A more intimate and personal knowledge of God. When we talk about knowing people, we can know people on a variety of levels. People will say, do you know so-and-so? Well, you may know their name. Uh, You may have lived next door. You you may have been involved with them over a period of time. We can know our spouses. But no matter how intimate and close we are with people, we can get to know them better. And people sometimes surprise us. And we say, well, I thought I knew that person. And then they're doing something that just seems totally out of character for what we know them to be. We see another side of them, as it were. Uh, We get to know them more intimately. Well, here is the heart cry of Paul saying, I want to know Christ better. Here's the heart cry of Moses. He wants to see the glory of God. Which, again, is a great lesson for us that we will never be totally satisfied in our relationship with the Lord on this side of heaven. There's always going to be within us a, an awareness that I don't know him the way I would like to know him. That I don't know him as fully as I'd like to know him, experientially. There are those times in our lives in which we, we long for a more intimate, personal knowledge of God. Experiential. Well, it's been true of all of God's people. For notice, next, there had been visible manifestations of the glory of God up to this point. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. Exodus 16.8 Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the the evening and bread uh, to the full in the morning. Uh, When he he sends, uh, when he gives manna, when he sends the quail, uh, you will see God's glory. Later in Exodus, there is another event in seeing God's glory. The eyes of the Son of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. So when he says, show me your glory, it isn't as though he had no awareness of the glory of God. But again, this idea of more fully, more intimately, more personally. So let's look at what this glory of God is. Because my point tonight is, this is the crux of what we need to know and understand about God better. The glory of God is to be seen in the manner in which the grace of God 
and the justice of God intertwine. That is God's ultimate glory. That, that is what makes him so worthy of our worship. Now, he deserves our worship because he's the creator. He made us. So, he deserves our, our worship. Uh, he deserves our worship because he's all-powerful. Uh, but yet, on another sense, you know, there, there are dictators that are all-powerful, but really aren't very glorious because they're sinister. Because they are evil. Because they are conniving. Because they are self-centered. Because they exploit people, etc., etc., etc. But God is glorious because not only is he creator and not only is he all-powerful, but because of this intertwining of grace and truth. So, Exodus 33, 19. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Again, this is recorded in Numbers. But now I pray that the power of the Lord be great, just as thou hast declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. But he will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Then this passage is quoted in Romans chapter 9. But what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? It's because it's talking about justice and it's talking about grace. May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will mercy on whom I will mercy, and I will compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it is this intertwining of God's grace and God's justice that is truly glorious. And Moses is going to be able to get a better glimpse of God's justice and God's grace. And as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to see God's justice in God's grace coming together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in a beautiful way in his atoning work. And as we begin to understand election and reprobation and forgiveness and justice and holiness and love and mercy, the more we're able to put that together, the more glorious God becomes. So, now Moses is given a glimpse of God's justice and God's mercy. Exodus 33:23. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but not my face shall be seen. So he doesn't get to see it fully, but he gets to understand it better. And now this statement. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two stone tablets, like the former ones. And I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. Now, before there's this vision that Moses receives, he receives the Ten Commandments. For they are a revelation of God's justice and God's grace. God's justice and mercy is seen in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 34.4 So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. uh, Because Moses had already shattered those. uh, 
the first time around. And so we're on the second set of stones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means clear the guilty, uh, leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So here is this incredible intertwining of God's justice and God's grace. He is going to forgive iniquity and yet at the same time not let the guilty go unpunished. Next. Um, In order to illustrate this, God uh, has the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25:16, And he shall put the ark into the ark of the testimony which I give you. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one half cubits wide. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub at the one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. And the chairmen shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned towards the mercy seat. Uh, I love this particular portion of Scripture. And as as we deal with the the tabernacle of the Old Testament, because it is so illustrative of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the very center of this great work, is the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember, the Ark of the Covenant is what is placed in the most holy place. It's the only piece of furniture in the most holy place. And the Ark of the Covenant is called the Ark of the Covenant because it contains the covenant. It contains the Ten Commandments. This is the basis of a right relationship with God. But mankind course, has failed miserably in keeping God's covenant. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant is what is referred to as the mercy seat. It's the lid on the top of the covenant. And it's called the mercy seat. It's because when they offer their sacrifices and on the Day of Atonement once a year, they take the blood from the sacrifice and the high priest brings it into the most holy place And he sprinkles it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is referred to as the Mercy Seat. You see, here is the coming together of God's justice and God's grace. Here is where the law and forgiveness come together. And so the blood is sprinkled on the top of the mercy seat. And then it depicts that on the two ends of the Ark of the Covenant, on the lid, they were to form uh, two cherubim, two angels with their, their wings spread upward and their face 
looking downward so that we have one like this and one like that. Their wings almost touch in the middle. And their faces are looking down upon the mercy seat. First Peter 1.12 It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The angels are amazed at our salvation. The angels don't understand why God would redeem us. The angels don't understand that intertwining of God's justice and God's mercy. And they marvel. And so now we find out, after reading the New Testament, that the purpose of these angels, with their wings spread, looking down upon the mercy seat, is that that is representative of how the angels desire to look into. Even the angels don't understand. They want to behold the glory of God, even though they are with Him. They are trying to understand. Exodus 25, 21. And you should put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And the ark you should put the testimony which I give you. And there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat. But that is the ultimate place where God meets with his people. Jesus Christ reveals to us the glory of God as he reveals grace and truth. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. What is that? Being full of grace and being full of truth. That that is what God reveals to us. That God the Father is a God who is filled with grace and at the same time absolutely devoted to truth, to justice, to holiness, to righteousness. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of God's glory in His atoning work. He is the place where God's truth and mercy meet. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood. I know you've heard me say this. I say it many times. But in my estimation, I cannot say it enough because I never want you to forget it, that the word propitiation, the Greek word that is translated as propitiation, means mercy seat. Jesus is that mercy seat. It is the sprinkling of His blood by which we are saved. He is the place where God's justice And God's mercy meet. And the more fully we understand that, the more glorious God becomes. What an incredible, redemptive plan of God. What a marvelous, loving plan of God that He would send His own Son for us. 
It is in understanding the atoning work of Jesus Christ that we see God in all His glory, His wisdom, His power, His goodness, His holiness, His grace, His love, His compassion. Everything is displayed in this wonderful, redemptive plan of God. Next, Christ's coming will be glorious in that He acts justly in His coming. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. You see, I, I think there's a tendency when we read these kind of things that then He will come in His glory that that means He's going to come you know, just glistening and shining. And I'll look at a passage or two in just a moment where we get those inclinations. But again, they are pictures. And the real glory that's associated with His coming is that He brings injustice. That He is going to punish sin. He is going to remove the evildoer. And He's going to establish the people of God. Verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. A throne of justice and mercy. And all nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. Now notice these words. Prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Inherit this gift that was prepared for you before I created anything. Called you by name. Matthew 25:41. Then he will say also to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal life, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This showing justice and mercy. Justice and grace. All at the same time. God's glory is pictured in two great symbols. There are two ways in which God visualizes His glory. And remember that it is a a visual representation so that uh, you understand God's glory. I was uh, reading and uh, I, I, I read an article about people that are really gifted in math and uh, it said that there are people who when they see numbers, they view them in colors. That, that that's how they remember and, and that's how they can do some of this uh, uh, really unusual math. That, that when they see the, the number, for them it's a color. And I have a uh, brother-in-law uh, who uh, uh, is a graduate of MIT and uh, has his doctorate in, in mathematics and, and also one in uh, psychology, does statistical psychology. I said, Bob, I said, by any chance, do you see numbers in color? And he said, yes, I do. When he sees a number, it, it's a color to him. Well, 
When we see God's glory, He manifests it to us in a visual way so that we can see that He's glorious. But it's only a representation of a deeper truth. And that is His justice and His mercy. His justice and His grace. So these two symbols for His glory are meant to help us understand His justice and His grace. The first, God's glory in grace and truth is pictured in the manifestation of a great light. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and the garments became white as light. And you may remember in the Old Testament, after Moses met with God, his face shone. And Jesus comes as a light into the world. And so all of these pictures of light are pictures of God's truth being revealed. He gives us light. He gives us understanding. He gives us wisdom. He gives us knowledge. He tells us of his will. We have his light. Those who do not have his light are in darkness. And they walk in darkness. And they are in a kingdom of darkness. And they hate the light. Because their deeds are evil. It will not come to the light. And so, here's this picture. Light for his people. Darkness for those that are not his people. This is his truth. It is glorious. And he manifests it in light. Notice the second symbol. God's glory in bringing justice is seen in the imagery of a consuming fire. Exodus 24:17. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And so the fire is symbolic of purging. It's symbolic of God's justice being poured out. He is a consuming fire. And, of course, the ultimate justice of God and the punishment of evil is seen in the lake of fire. God's justice being accomplished upon those that are lost. So, God, in His glory, withholds His compassion for some. John twelve thirty eight, And the word of Isaiah the prophet might be filled, which is spoke, O Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not believe. For I, again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, He has hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. These, these, these things Isaiah said because he saw His glory. And he spoke of Him. His justice And his mercy and grace. Mankind has fallen short of showing God's justice and God's compassion and God's grace. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, you see, when you ask that question, what does that mean? We fall short of the glory of God. We fall short in demonstrating that 
unbelievably difficult intertwining of, of, of justice and grace. We have a tendency to err on one of those sides. Either fiercely justice or a graciousness that is so overwhelming that, that all truth is placed on the side. It's hard to show grace and truth at the same time. But it is truly glorious. It's wonderful. Because if we're going to show grace, it means that we have to give of ourselves to hold out the justice. We many times have to ourselves be put on the line, give of ourselves, like a person who owes a debt. And if we want to show them mercy, we have to pay the debt. This maintaining righteousness at the same time that you administer justice. Conclusion. To diminish either the justice of God or the compassion of God is to rob God of his glory. Uh, I mentioned Rob Bell's book uh, on Sunday morning, a few Sunday mornings ago, and his view of the fact that virtually there is no hell and everyone's going to be reconciled to God. That might sound wonderful, but it robs God of his glory. It robs God of his glory. Yes, hell is a glorious thing. And heaven is a glorious thing. God's grace and truth. Number two, what we need is a greater understanding of and appreciation for the tension between grace and truth. You really want to know God in his essence? When it comes down to it, according to Exodus, it's getting a better grasp of this concept of grace and truth, and in particular, how it's manifested in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And, we are to have a tremendous thankfulness that a God of truth has compassion upon us. This started, if you go back to page one, Exodus 33, verse 16. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and thy people? Is it not by thy going with us, so that we, I and thy people, may be distinguished from all the people who are on the face of the earth? What is the greatest favor that God shows? Answer, never leaving us nor forsake us. And that's the great promise of the New Testament. Jesus says to his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's the promise of the book of Hebrews. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have doctrines such as eternal security, perseverance of the saints, and all these things that, that, that talk about the, the assurance that we have of eternal life. But you see, what that all breaks down to is an understanding of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. To realize that my sin is placed upon him. 
And as a result of him bearing my sin, as a result of him being the mercy seat, he is at one the same time able to be just and to, able to be merciful. Go back with me to page four. Page four. At the bottom. Romans 3.23. I read the first part and stopped. I'm going to go back and read it all. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace to the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, mercy seat, in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. So, one at the same time. He can be just, he can be holy, he can be righteous, and at the very same time, he can declare us a people who are not just, who are not holy, and not righteous. Righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's the glory of God. That's our assurance of God's love for us. And that is the reason He will never leave us nor forsake us. And the more you understand the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more assured you will be of God's love for you, of God's care for you, and the way in which He will be with you forever. And so now, we actually have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And being with us wherever we go. Because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. To whom be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we beseech you. Show us your glory. Help us to understand the atoning work of Jesus Christ in an ever more uh, meaningful and practical way. Help us to see how your justice and your mercy came together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and through his death, and through his resurrection. We belong to you. You have called us by name. You have shown your love for us. You have borne our sin. You have promised us the eternal life, and we'll be with you one day, forever and ever. Thank you. And reveal these things to us more fully, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.